Hello and welcome to the Alatia Foundation podcast. My name is Nawid Jabarkil. Today we're delighted to be joined by Mr. Tim Callan. Mr. Callan is a visiting fellow at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington, focusing on the economics of Saudi Arabia and the Gulf region. He was formerly the IMF mission chief to Saudi Arabia and head of the GCC division from 2012 to 2021 and then Special Advisor to the Executive Director for Saudi Arabia at the International Monetary Fund from 2021 to 2022. Tim, welcome to the Alatia Foundation podcast. Nawid, thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here and uh, very much looking forward to our discussion. Let's start then. Just begin by telling us what the core function is of the Arab Gulf States Institute. Right, yeah. I mean, so the Arab Gulf States Institute is an independent non-profit institution in, in Washington, D.C. in the United States. It was established with the aim of highlighting the, the importance of the relationship between the United States and the Gulf region. Um, the Institute works to increase the understanding of the Gulf region, particularly in the U.S., across economic, political, social and cultural dimensions. We do a lot of research, which you can find on our website, agsiw.com. And also we do a lot of um, event organizations um, around uh, these issues of, uh, you know, that I just spoke about. So we're small, but I think we have some uh, very interesting research that's done. And the region uh, and its people quickly and economies as well, quickly shifting. Uh, in the past, Gulf countries and Saudi Arabia were quite sensitive when it came to things like their population statistics presumably because of the relatively low proportion of citizens in the overall population in many Gulf states, at least. Do those sorts of sensitivities still exist? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think, as you said, you know, the situation clearly varies across countries within the Gulf. I mean, if you take Saudi Arabia, clearly, you know, in broad terms, maybe two thirds of the population are nationals and the remaining expatriates in Qatar or UAE, then clearly it's much more heavily weighted towards expatriates and nationals. I mean, my own sense is that, um, you know, the bigger issue in terms of, you know, the lack of, you know, population data and detailed population data is not so much the sensitivity, although I think that is definitely there in some cases, but really, you know, in many uh, cases, you know, until quite recently, there's been a lack of investment in economic and social data in many of these countries and conducting a census to get accurate population data is not easy it takes a lot of resources it takes a lot of training of staff to do that um, you know Saudi has just recently um, published a new census it was a, a long time in the making to do that um, so I think, you know, at least to my mind, it's more an issue of, um, of resources and, you know, the skills and uh, abilities to do these things rather than the sensitivity. And I think, you know, lastly, in the case of Saudi, we have now, interestingly, in the new census, got some uh, detailed data about the composition of the expatriate population in the country by nationality, which is the first time we've seen that. Yeah, and we're seeing uh, the government also take a more proactive approach when it when it comes to, to dealing with those population issues, whether it's things like Saudiization and getting more into the to of them in the workforce. But just generally, then, what's the effect of this been, do you think, on government policy in places like Saudi Arabia? 
Yeah, I mean, well, I think when we're talking about expatriates in the Gulf, you know, the first thing, you know, you have to really point out is that, you know, expatriates do a lot of the jobs in the region, right, both from unskilled to skilled. Again, it depends, you know, across countries, a mix of skilled and unskilled expatriates. But really, this ability to bring in expatriates has really helped the region grow very quickly and much quicker than it would have been able to do in the absence of, um, you know, of that influx of labour. So, um, you know, I think you have to look at the the expatriate labour from the point of view of the countries as being a positive in terms of their development and their growth. Um, you know, certainly what we've seen is, um, you know, these countries have very open labour markets in terms of, you know, the ability to bring expatriate labour in. Of course, less open from the point of view of the expatriate once they're in the country because, you know, there have been many restrictions through sponsorship systems in terms of what the expatriates can do in the countries and their movement that's beginning to change in some countries. Um, the other thing I think that uh, we are seeing, and I think you know, UAE in particular is a big example of this, is um, the efforts to try and put in policies that encourage an influx of skilled expatriate labour, um, you know, more so than probably in the past. So we've seen you know, changes to the visa system, for example, to try and encourage this. Um, you know, the issue maybe for Saudi and you know. I think Oman as well, in terms of having larger shares of national population, is as you said, you know, there's this challenge of getting, you know, the local population into jobs, particularly in the private sector. Traditionally, they've worked more in the public sector, and we've seen, um, you know, quota systems. You know, the most obvious one is need to cut in Saudi Arabia um, to try and shift the the balance of the nationals expatriate population in the private sector workforce. Um, you know, if we look at sectors, we're seeing more nationals work clearly in the retail sector, but also, you know, more broadly than that. So these policies, you know, are certainly having an impact in terms of increasing the um, the uh, you know the share of um, national labour in the private sector, but of course research shows they also come with costs in terms of you know raising the cost to to businesses of of doing business. Yeah, and it's not just a demographic shift, but we're also seeing societal shifts at the same time as well. I mean, if you look at uh, women participating in the workforce in the Middle East, it's relatively low compared to some other parts of the world. If you take uh, Western Europe, for example, or the US, but uh, what do you make of this cultural shift uh, as it's being perceived where women are having more active roles both in the public and private sectors in the region yeah yeah i mean you're absolutely right it's um i mean i think quite a dramatic shift i mean you know particularly if you look at saudi arabia the country i'm most familiar with in the region i mean you know we give you a few numbers which i think you know really show the the size of the um you know the changes that are taking place over the last six years, you know, the, the labour force participation rate of Saudi women has doubled from around 17% to 35%. Employment of Saudi women has increased by 45%. And the unemployment rate for Saudi women has halved, you know, 33% to, you know, just under 16%. I mean, these are really huge changes in a, in a pretty short period of time. And, you know, those women are bringing, you know, 
many are highly educated, they're very well motivated, so they're bringing their skills which will raise growth and productivity in the economy beyond, you know, there are also clearly personal benefits, household income benefits, but just from an economic growth point of view, um, this is going to be very beneficial. Now, on the other hand, you know, they are still relatively low, um, you know, throughout the Middle East region, participation rates tend to be lower than in many other parts of the, um, of the world. Um, so there's more to do in terms of continuing to raise um, participation rates. Um, what can be done in that area? I guess, you know, one thing is, you know, I think that the whole demonstration effect of having more women in senior positions then helps encourage other women into the workforce. We're still in the situation where your know, women are you know, increasingly moving up into senior positions, but it's still, you know, male dominated, I think, in the region in, in senior positions. So, you know, more women into senior positions, I help will help with the demonstration effect there. And then I think, you know, the other thing is just, you know, making sure in companies, you know, people are, you know, in terms of HR policies are aware that the benefits of women in the workforce are doing things that will encourage and make sure that they are, you know, they are welcomed into the labour force. And that'll be good for economies going forward if we can do that. Yeah, and it certainly is palpable. Um, every time almost that I go to Saudi Arabia, you do notice a, a significant difference when it comes to to, to those societal changes. But looking at the economic situation then, one thing that most Gulf states have in common, all of them, is trying to diversify their economies away from fossil fuels. What do you make of, of efforts there? I mean, you've got the likes of Dubai, which is seen as a bit of a gold standard when it, when it comes to economic diversification. But how do you think the energy transition and the need to move away from fossil fuels and towards net zero emissions is accelerating or affecting the, the move to diversify economies? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, clearly there's a push to diversify across the Gulf. Um, you know, Dubai, as you said, is, um, you know, is seen as a gold standard, but it's also true that, you know, Dubai has never really had the oil of you know Abu Dhabi, you know Kuwait, and so on. And I think if we, you know, we look across economic history, there are very few examples of countries which have you know which are so dependent on oil successfully diversifying. So you know that gives a sense of the huge challenge that is being faced. But I think it's also true that um, not many countries trying to diversify have had the huge financial resources that many Gulf countries have, nor, you know, the apparent political will at the moment to try and bring about diversification, which, you know, I think we're particularly seeing in Saudi Arabia, but true in, in other countries. So I've done a little bit of work on Saudi Arabia, looking at progress with diversification. And I think, you know, you can definitely see progress over the last 10 years, but that still leaves the economy still dominated by oil. So there's much further um, to go on that side. And if we look at areas where, you know, there is diversification, you know, 
clearly we see it in the growth in petrochemicals, although you can argue whether that's really true diversification because of the links to oil, but it does bring additional value added. But in Saudi, I think we're seeing it in the tourism sector where you know, tourism has clearly you know, had religious visitors for many, many, many years. Um, but we're now beginning to see you know, non-religious tourism coming into the country. And we're also seeing the development of the mining sector. Um, of course, efforts are ongoing to try and create more of an industrial base. I think that's harder at this stage to see the, the benefits of, but it's clearly going to take time to do that as well. So, you know, those are my broad thoughts on this area. Yeah, and it's interesting, I think, particularly with Saudi Arabia and the economic progress taking place there, at least from an investment perspective, is the regional competition that's heating up as well between um, states in the UAE, the likes of Qatar, but also Saudi Arabia, when it comes to attracting that economic investment moving forward. But one thing diversifying economies may help governments do is to stop looking too closely at the break-even price of oil, which has traditionally been uh, really a bedrock of their of their fiscal budgets. You you say that, that that's a poor indicator you've written in the past of fiscal policies focusing on, on the break-even price of oil. Just tell us why you think that is. Yeah, sure. I mean, so maybe, you know, just as background to define the break-even oil price for listeners. So, you know, what we would define as the fiscal break-even oil price is that the, the price which will balance the budget given oil production and the taxes and you know dividends that would uh, would accrue to the government from that and expenditure so take expenditure oil production is given work out what the oil price is to to, to balance the budget I mean, in my view there are you know at least three weaknesses with that I mean first of all you know everything's always moving right i mean you know if oil production you know the oil price does something say it drops the tendency in the region is that you will um you know cut production to try and change the price so the oil price and production are interlinked not you know sort of independent as is assumed and of course government spending is always changing we look in the region the oil price goes up usually government spending goes up as well so these are i think weaknesses in terms of you know the price and when you see in you know a report by analysts or in the media a break-even oil price quoted normally it's already out of date by the time you, you read it wherever you've read it because things have changed um secondly you know if we're looking at many countries um there's a lot of spending now going on outside of the central government so again saudi arabia we see a lot of spending going through the public investment fund now so that is not included in the central government data of course there's very little you know information available often on these uh you know these quasi government entities but really from the point of view of you know the overall fiscal impact i need to include the spending from these um these entities in it which is very hard to do so that sort of devalues a little bit the the oil price calculation at the central government level and then you know the third reason um i think is a, is a weakness is you know it, it assumes you need to balance the, the the government budget each year which is just not the case right you can run deficits you can run surpluses it depends on the economic situation if i'm my economy is not doing very well i might want to spend more 
to support growth and that you know running a fiscal deficit may be the right thing to do so it's a bit of an erroneous assumption to assume the budget will also be balanced so my preferred methodology here is to look in more detail at the fiscal accounts both revenues expenditures rather than get caught up on one headline number which you know it sounds good in the media to quote it but you know i think has very little underlying economic value yeah particularly consider the long-term strategic um, reasoning behind a lot of the investments that we're seeing, particularly whether it's capital investments or in strategic sectors like, like tourism, as you say, take the, the, the new airport being built in, in Riyadh. But just moving on then, I just wanted to pick up on something else that you've spoken about before and advising on the need for the formation of better institutions in the region's areas. I mean, are we there now with the institutions or are stronger ones still needed? Yeah, I, I think um, there's been a lot of progress in strengthening, and here I'm talking about economic institutions, not you know, broader political institutions and so on. But um, you know, again, you know, let me talk about you know, Saudi Arabia a bit where I'm most familiar. Um, you know, if you look at um, you know, what's happened since the, um, the publication of Vision 2030, we've seen the establishment of, um, you know, the, um, the, of CEDA, which is the overall sort of you know, economic and development committee um, to bring you know, sort of greater, I think, coordination and clarity across you know, different dimensions of economic policy um, in Saudi Arabia. Um, I think that's very important in terms of improving policy coordination. And then if we look at the Ministry of Finances, you know, sort of one of the key fiscal institutions, we've seen, I think, again, a lot of changes um, in terms of, you know, improving the skills and training of the staff. We've seen much more structure put around the budget process, how that's done from, you know, going from the year to the start of the budget all the way through to the uh, the publication of the uh, the budget numbers we've seen more of a medium-term fiscal framework put in place so it's not just focused on the current year but they're also looking at what's going to happen in the next two years so i think these are all part of you know what i would call strengthening um you know economic institutions more generally in this case fiscal institutions but i think there is still you know quite a lot of uh, work to do in this area um, you know, one thing, you know, I'm beginning to get a little worried on in Saudi Arabia is this big increase in spending we've seen the last couple of years. And, you know, with the pre-budget statement released um, at the weekend, you know, again, we've seen, you know, the projection of spending exceeding budget as oil prices of um, or oil revenues have, you know, exceeded earlier expectations. So I think that, um, you know, what you would hope eventually to see is, a, you know, a fiscal framework that was not so susceptible to spending moving with the oil price. Um, we've certainly seen progress compared to where we were a decade ago, but I still see, you know, further, uh, you know, further strengthening needed. Yeah, and I think to pick up on the point you made with the last, the previous answer is, it's, it may be some of these changes and, and, and what's happening in places like Saudi Arabia, are, are bigger issues and wider issues that can't simply be factored and measured in in financial terms, which is one of the problems you have when you look you look at it in purely economic terms. But one one question then to to finish off: as the energy transition proceeds, we've heard from the IEA saying peak oil demand. We've heard about it for years and years. 
is going to happen, Party Bureau, uh, the head says, within this decade. Do you think there's a great danger then of stranded assets, both above and below ground, in this region in particular? Yeah, I mean, I think there are clearly very differing views as to what the you know the future of uh, fossil fuel demand and supply are. You know, you clearly have the IEA view. Um, if you then listen to the uh, Saudi energy minister and OPEC, you'll you know you'll get a different view. Um, but I think what's important to uh, remember, you know, even if we reach peak energy demand, that doesn't mean demand for fossil fuels is suddenly vanishing, right? It will, you know, continue. I suspect for uh, for many years to come, even if it's you know declining um, demand, then it'll still be there. And of course, you know, producers in the Gulf region in general are amongst the lowest cost producers in the world so they're going to be amongst the last to uh, to get hit um in terms of um you know sort of the ability to extract and sell their um you know their oil assets um you know profitably um i think other things also you know in terms of oil demand are less clear to me i mean one is even if we're um, in a position of you know, burning less fossil fuels, there are other demand for fossil fuels, you know, plastics, petrochemicals. Maybe there'll be even new things developed going forward. Um, you know, secondly, I think is you know the you know how viable is carbon capture technology at scale? I mean, clearly we're seeing investments in that area, um, but is this something that is realistically um, you know? going to roll out in a meaningful way and if it does what does that mean for the demand for fossil fuel and then thirdly you know the whole technology in terms of you know oil exploration and um and you know extraction changes hugely right so what we think of you know oil reserves at the moment in 20 years those oil reserves may be you know considerably bigger or potentially bigger because of the technology changes so i think you know if you add all of that together um is there a risk of stranded assets in the region yes there probably is um you know those assets could increase in terms of as the technology um increases over time but at the same time my sense is that oil demand from the region is going to be there for a considerable while to come so yes there's some risk but i i don't see that as a you know as a huge risk at this stage uh, particularly if you consider the shift that all Gulf states really are, are having towards the global south and emerging markets in the developing world. So perhaps that's a, a reflection of, of things to come on that final point. But that's all we've yeah. got time for. That concludes our, our interview today. Tim, uh, thank you very much. That's Tim Callum for providing us with some great analysis, great insights that I'm sure hopefully our listeners enjoyed. Tim, on behalf of the Foundation, uh, thank you very much. And we look forward to speaking with you again in the future. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time as well. Thank you. And of course, thank you very much for listening. Be sure to keep up to date with all of the Alatia Foundation's work by following us on Twitter and on YouTube. You can find us under our name. I've been Nawid Jabarkil. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>